Welcome to the First Baptist Church Keller Sermon Podcast. Each week we make available sermons from Pastor Keith and our staff on our website, fbckeller.org. And on iTunes, search for First Baptist Church Keller TX in the iTunes Store or in the podcast app on your mobile device. And now here's our pastor, Keith Sanders. Let's open our copies of God's Word now to the third chapter of the book of Romans. We have a larger pericope than normal this morning, 18 verses beginning in chapter 1 here in chapter 3, uh, verse 1, chapter 3, Romans 3, 1, 18, our text. And you might remember that I have said that Paul is serving in this section of Scripture as sort of a de facto prosecuting attorney. And uh, those who are being indicted include all of us. It's all of the human race. And he's laying out a very orderly and logical case concerning the guilt of every person. And he began with the most obvious sinners to most people, the pagan Gentile idolaters. They had devolved into rank idolatry and sexual deviancy. And Paul anticipates that the religious and moral crowd would readily agree that the worst elements of society were indeed deserving of God's wrath, that God was just in his future judgment of them. But then Paul turns his attention to them and declares that those who condemn the worst sinners are in reality guilty of the same sins and also deserving of God's just wrath. And then finally, as we saw last week, Paul gets very specific and addresses his fellow countrymen, the Jews, directly. And many of Paul's Jewish cohorts believe that they were exempt from judgment because they were genetically Jewish or because they had read the law all their life or most importantly, because they had the external sign of circumcision. And one by one, Paul disabuses them of those objections and declares that they too were without excuse. Now, Paul had been teaching the universality of God's judgment likely for some time, traveling from city to city on his missionary journeys, taking always the gospels to the Jews first in their synagogues and then to the Gentiles. He first exposed their sin and guilt and then offered the solution. And it is really the theme of this entire book, the solution for man's guilt is justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And wherever he went, I suspect his message was met with a similar set of objections and questions. And if you regularly share the gospel in our context here in America, um, you are likely you likely have heard some well-worn objections and questions of your own, questions like this. But I'm a good person. Surely God won't judge me. A question like this, if God is so good, why does he allow innocent children to suffer? Now, most all of these objections, these objections start with the phrase, what about? In fact, I was tempted to title this sermon, what about? Instead, the title of the message today is answering the frequently asked questions of the advantaged. The advantaged are those who have greater exposure to the light of the gospel. You remember earlier in this study of Romans, the Apostle Paul described the criteria upon which God will judge all of humanity. His first criteria is truth. He is omniscient. He knows everything about us, every thought we've ever thought, everything we've ever done, and the books are going to be open, and he's going to judge on truth, and he knows all truth. He's going to judge based on his own righteousness, we don't worry about him making a mistake or doing something that is unfair. He is perfectly righteous. The crime and the punishment will fit together. 
He, he judges us based on our deeds, the external evidence of whether or not we've been born again. And he judges according to our light. That is, the degree of punishment or reward will have to do with our opportunity, our exposure to God's revelation, in other words. The more light one has, the greater the responsibility. Well, the group of people that had the greatest revelation, the greatest light for centuries, were God's chosen people, the Jews. But Paul had pointed out that they too are guilty before God because even though they had God's revealed law and taught it, they did not obey it. And it's not the hearing of the law, Paul says, that pleases God, but the obeying of it. And having made that point clear, Paul now anticipates their objections. He's probably heard them wherever he's gone. And this morning, we're going to hear four of those objections in the form of questions. Now, I'm going to tell you up front, this is a difficult passage. As I was studying this week, a number of the commentators believe that this is the most difficult passage in all the Bible. So you're going to have to follow closely, and you're going to have to think deeply. We're going to follow Paul's logic as this prosecuting attorney and attempt to make application in our own lives. So first, let's read the text and get started with frequently asked question number one. Romans 3, 118, Paul says, Then what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First, that they were entrusted with the actual words of God. What then, if some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Far from it. Rather, God must prove to be true that every person be found a liar, as it is written, so that you are justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking from a human viewpoint. Far from it. For otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged a sinner? And why not say, just as some are slanderously reported, as some claim that we are, let's do evil, that good may come of it. Their condemnation is deserved. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is no righteous person, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And they've not known the way of peace. There is no fear of God before their eyes. May the Lord add his blessing the reading and hearing of this, his word. So question number one that Paul often heard after he told people the bad news of their own sin. The question from Jews is, is there any advantage to being Jewish? Remember, the Jews of Paul's day wore their Jewishness as a badge of honor. They would say, we are the chosen people. We know the true God. We are circumcised. And Paul seems to be saying, in their ears at least, that there is no advantage to being Jewish and, and seems to be turning on his upbringing and on his own family heritage. But that is not the case at all. Remember, as we saw last week, Paul's motivation was his love and concern that his countrymen be saved, that they escape God's wrath through faith in Christ. And so let's try to answer that question. Is there any advantage to being Jewish? Well, what would history say? 
You've all studied history. You know that Jewish people have been hated and reviled and abused and chased out of one country after the other. For 400 years, they were put under hard labor by Pharaoh in Egypt. They spent 70 years in Babylonian captivity. The Assyrians were a constant threat to their safety and security. In the days of Jesus, they were under Roman oppression. And in 70 AD, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple desecrated. And until this good day, there is anti-Semitism throughout the world. Did you know that there's only 15 million Jewish people left in the entire world today? And nearly half of them live here in the United States. And yet Paul's answer, is there any advantage to being Jewish, might surprise you. He says, much in every way. Yes, he says, there are more than one advantage to being Jewish. And he gives only one here in this text, as we'll see. But when we get to chapter 9, he gives numerous reasons why there's advantage to being Jewish. First of all, he says chiefly that they have been entrusted, what the King James says, are the oracles of God. The Word of God, that is the Old Testament. They have God's special revelation. What an honor. Through the Jewish people, God has given to us His special revelation. Now remember, all of humanity has God's general revelation through nature. We can know His attributes. He's powerful. He's creative. He's a sustainer. And yet, we need a special revelation to know how to know Him. And it's through the Jews, that God has given his word. Just think about in the Old Testament, we have some of life's most important and greatest questions answered. The questions that all humans have been asking and seeking answers to since Adam and Eve. Number one, how did we get here? <laughs> you ever thought about that? When you think about human history and the human race, well, how did we get here? Scientists say uh, one thing, the Bible says quite another. And Genesis tells us the creation narrative that on the sixth day, God created man. Another great question is, what is the meaning of life? All of us have contemplated that. And the Bible tells us that it is to glorify God. You might have the question, well, where is this all heading? How does the world end? The Bible tells us how it got started. How does it end? Well, the book of Daniel tells us that uh, Messiah is coming to rule and reign as King of Kings, Lord of Lords. But the most important thing the Bible teaches us is the way of salvation that there is a coming Savior and that He will bless all the nations of the world, including the Gentiles, and He is the Messiah. Now, I would submit that the only other group of people that have ever had greater light than the nation of Israel may be the folks in this room. People living today in historically Christian parts of the world like we do. We have access to individual copies of the Bible in a multitude of translations. We have access to preaching, not only live in this service, but in the media of all kind. We have the freedom of worship. Yes, these are advantages. And yes, some in the world have more light than others. But if you live in a, cult a culture like the Jewish culture or a culture like the one in the West today, and you fail to repent of sins and bow your knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, your guilt is not lessened, it is compounded. And so the next frequently asked question, he says, is there an advantage to being Jewish? He says, yes, they have the word of God. Second question is, does Jewish unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? Look at verse three, he says, what then? If some 
did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? Paul's not being overly harsh. In fact, he's being incredibly gracious. He uses the word some. If some Jewish people did not believe, well, it's really like almost all of them. If most of them did not believe, but Paul's being kind. Now, now God made a series of covenant promises, didn't he? And it started with the Abrahamic covenant. Remember, God caused Abraham to fall into a deep sleep, and he cut those animals in half, and he caused his, himself to walk in between. And he was saying by that, I take it, Abraham, I'm going to do some things for you. And he made certain promises to Abraham that he was going to receive the land that God had promised him, and, and that through his descendants um, that they were going to multiply, and that through him all the nation of the world would be blessed. And then he gave Moses the uh, Mosaic or the Sinai covenant, the law, the Ten Commandments. And then he gave him the way in which he was to be worshipped in that old covenant system, that system of ceremonies and sacrifices. And then he gave David, the second king of Israel, his Davidic covenant and told him that there would be one of his descendants who would be the eternal king that would rule and reign forever. And so Paul asked, does the fact that some Jewish people fail to be obedient does that in any way nullify God's faithfulness? Of course, the answer is a resounding no. In fact, it's more than no. It's the Greek phrase, may it never be. It is the strongest negative in the Greek language. He could not have chosen a stronger term to say no. In fact, he says in verse 4, far from it. Rather, God must prove to be true, though every person be found a liar, as it is written, so that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you're judged. Paul was being accused of questioning God's promises to Israel. That is, their logic went like this. If God's going to judge his chosen people, Israel, the same way he is going to judge the Gentiles, what benefit is there to being Jewish? And isn't God a liar in your point of view? And Paul says, far from it. And he gives the example of one of the great Jewish patriarchs, David, and he quotes from his psalm of contrition when he says, so that you are justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. You remember David's great sin. He committed adultery and it led to murder. And so God sent the prophet Nathan to confront David and said, thou art the man, you are guilty. And what, what did David respond? Did he get angry with Nathan and have him cast out or killed? No, he was broken in his sin. And Psalm 51 is a psalm of great repentance and contrition. And in the fourth verse of the 51st Psalm, David writes to God, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that you may be justified when you speakest and be clear when you judgest, rather than object to God's accusation against David's infidelity. David, the king of Israel, agrees with God. And he says to God in this psalm, whatever judgment God chooses to give, I deserve it. And for the rest of the psalm, David does not plea to God for justice. Now in some of the psalms, David cries out to God for justice. His enemies were surrounding him and um, he was innocent of the charges they were bringing against him. And so in his innocence, he calls out to God to bring justice. But in this particular psalm, the last thing David wants is justice. He wants mercy. And dear friends, I would say that this is a picture of how every lost sinner, Jew or Gentile, must come to salvation. Not 
with our bona fides, not with our resume, not with our achievements and our trophies. We come to him on his turn with empty hands and empty pockets, and we say, God, I agree with your assessment of me. I am a sinner, and whatever punishment you choose to give would be just. But please give me mercy instead of justice. But Paul takes it a step further by saying, even if every human on earth proves to be a liar, that doesn't do one thing to impugn the holiness of God. Amen? And by the way, all humans are liars. We are sinners. But that doesn't do one thing to tell us about the faithfulness of God. God must prove to be true, though every person be found a liar. So the answer to the question, does our unfaithfulness or does the Jewish nation's unfaithfulness mean that God has been unfaithful? No, absolutely not. The unfaithfulness of Israel does not nullify the faithfulness of God. Now, frequently asked question number three, is not God being unfair to judge everyone? Verse five, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking from a human viewpoint. But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as we are slanderously reported, as some have claimed that we say, let's do evil, that good may come of it. Their condemnation is deserved. Now remember when I said this is a hard text, exhibit A. That's hard to follow. I remember reading this as a young Christian over and over and having no idea how to follow his logic. So, so let's walk through it just phrase by phrase. Here is the heart of the matter. Paul is declaring the guilt of all humanity. He's warning them to become desperate and hopeless so that they'll run to Jesus. This is the root, the root of almost all ancient and modern objections to God's revelation and to the simple gospel message. You ready for it? You've all heard it. That's not fair. You've heard it from your children. It's come out of your own mouth. It comes from people all over the world who are self-righteous when they hear that they too must bow their knee to the Savior. That's not fair. And we accuse God of being unfair in a number of ways. Number one, uh, he's not fair, you've heard, for allowing suffering. Pastor, you say that God is omnipotent. He can do all his will. If he's also merciful and good and kind, why doesn't he stop suffering in the world? You've all heard that question. By the way, I'm not going to answer that question today because I don't know the answer. Just hear what God says, that he's not unfaithful and he's not unfair and he's not unrighteousness. Some say that God's not fair because he chooses to save some and not everybody. Well, that's a fallacy on its face. Let's say there, there's 10 people on death row and the governor chooses to grant clemency and stay the execution of one. Is he being unfair to the others? No, he's being merciful to the one. And so God's not unfair in saving some and not all. They all deserve death, but in his mercy, he saves some. But the ultimate charge of unfairness that all of humanity says in unison, he's unfair to judge me. He's unfair to judge my sin because I have special circumstances that other people don't. Or 
I've done enough good things to make up for my bad things. He would be unfair to judge me. So you see his logic. In fact, their logic goes something like this. When we sin, Paul, you say that God is glorified. And he is. God is going to glorify himself either through salvation or judgment. His holiness is more visible against the background of our sinfulness. You've all heard the story about the preacher back in the 1800s who was going to preach. And uh, as he was on his way to Chicago, he saw these um, newly painted white houses along the railroad track. And he commented how beautiful and pristinely white they were. And then after his meeting, there had come a snowstorm in the Midwest. And on his way home, those newly painted white houses looked dingy by comparison to the snow. And so the logic of, of the sinner is this. We could not understand God's holiness if it weren't set against our sinfulness. So really, God owes us a thank you. You're welcome, Lord, for allowing us to glorify you through our sinfulness. So they say, if God is glorified through our sinfulness, how can he, in good conscience, Judge us. Paul says, far from it. God is not unfair, verse 6. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? I remember he's addressing Jewish people now, and from their perspective, the world were the nations, the Gentiles, the pagans. I remember I preached a sermon a few weeks ago called Before You Say Amen. And the week before, we had preached about the Gentiles and their sexual deviancy and idolatry, and Paul's Jewish brethren were saying, Amen, Brother Paul. You preach about those Gentiles and their future judgment. Every Jewish person rejoiced at the coming judgment of the nations. They thought they were exempt. Paul says if God is fundamentally unfair in judging anyone, that would mean that he would be unfair in judging the Gentiles. <laughs> and he knew that would get their attention. Remember their Jewish objections. They declare that the Gentiles deserve to be judged by God, but according to this logic, no one should be. And then he gives the coup de grace, the final flaw in their logic is exposed by Paul, and that is this, verse 8, and why not say, this is hypothetical, Paul's just saying, why, why wouldn't you then take it to the logical conclusion, just as some have said about us falsely, let's do evil that good may come of it. Now this is something Paul faced in other areas, not just in Rome. Here's the logic. When we sin, either if God judges us or forgives us, he's glorified in both ways. Would you agree? And so the logic is we might as well live it up. We might as well sin more and more because this glorifies God and then he will be obliged to us for glorifying him through our sin. And of course, this is evil way of thinking. What he's describing here is a concept called antinomianism. And Paul was accused of this more than once. Paul talked about grace and forgiveness and mercy. And a lot of people say, well, Paul, you're just telling people to sin, 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 all they have to do is say, I'm sorry, and, and then this world's going to turn into a chaotic mess if we tell people they can sin, 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 and, and just say, I'm sorry, and ask for mercy. And what does Paul say to that? That same phrase again, may it, may it never be. Perish the thought. You don't understand the gospel at all. See, when we are saved, friends, we are saved out of the bondage of sin, do you know why we sin before we're saved? Because we can't help it. And when we are born again, we're transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God's dear son, and we're given the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. And for the first time in our lives, we are able not to sin. 
We are set free, not to sin wantonly, but to serve Jesus. And if a person's attitude is, now that I'm saved, I can sin all I want without any circumstances to follow, that person's not saved. That's, they don't understand the gospel at all. They've not been born again. To be born again becomes a new creature. Old things have passed, but it doesn't mean you never sin again. It means your attitude towards that sin is fundamentally and forever changed. You hate your sin. And that's what Paul said in Romans chapter 7 of his own sin. The things I want to do, I don't do. The things I don't want to do, I do. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Paul knew as long as he lived in this life, it would be a 24-7 battle against his own flesh. But his heart's desire was to serve the Lord Jesus, not to sin. God fundamentally changes our desires when we're saved. Now, fourth question. Do our advantage, I'm including us today, not just Jewish people, to, to those who have a Bible on their shelf and access to the gospel every day, do our advantages make us right with God? Are we right with God by virtue of having 10 Bibles in our house? No, absolutely not. Let me ask you, does it make you right with God to go to church regularly? No more than it makes you a car to sit in your garage regularly. Does it make you right with God to be baptized? Does it make you right with God that your parents and grandparents were Christian? Absolutely not. Do you have an advantage that many people don't? Absolutely, yes. And if you're lost here today and you've been coming to church for 20 years, keep on coming. Keep on being exposed to the truth for the Lord may one day open your eyes and grant you faith and repentance. But if you don't repent of your sins, if you keep basking in the light of God's revelation and it never leads you to repentance, the truth is that one day when you stand before God, yours will be the stricter judgment. It's a fearful thing. This is Paul's point. And he punctuates his point by quoting a number of familiar Old Testament passages. Verses 10 through 18 is just a conglomeration of very familiar passages from the Old Testament, from the Psalms and Proverbs and other places. And he just, with rapid fire succession, he's like a guy with a machine gun that just keeps on firing his, his, his weapon. He says, there's no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The venom of snakes is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And they have not known the way of peace. Summary line, there's no fear of God before their eyes. They're living just like the Gentiles. Every person's gone his own way. No one is without excuse. Now, we've been going over this for five weeks <laughs> without relief. We've been talking about the wrath of God and why it's just and why he's not unfair to mete it out against all people, Jew or Gentile. There's going to be some relief next week when we get to verse 20. Let me just... Read it, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, and through the law comes the knowledge of sin. 
And then he goes on verse 22 and says, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there's no distinction. You gotta know you're lost before you can be saved. You've gotta have all of your excuses and objections nullified. You have to come to God broken and contrite, not from a position of negotiation. And so let me make application in four ways. Number one, if you're here today and you're a skeptic, say, Pastor, I keep hearing this stuff. I just don't believe it. I've got too many questions about the Bible. I would say to you, bring your objections to the Bible. <laughs> the Bible has held up very well for many years against objections from every group on planet Earth. Your objections, secondly, are not new. I know every generation thinks they have figured out what no one else has ever figured out, that I've got some novel or new question about the Bible no one has had before. Come closer, I'll tell you your secret. No, you don't. No, you don't. <laughs> there is nothing new under the sun. You may have an objection, but I promise you many others have had the same objection, and it can easily be answered. Your objections are not new, and God cannot and will not change. His answers are going to be the same. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now, to the Christian, I would say to you, study to show yourself an approved workman that does not need to be ashamed. Redouble your efforts in memorizing scripture and studying the Bible so that you will be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within you. But you don't have to be afraid of your neighbor's quest. I know people that won't witness because they're afraid their neighbor's going to ask them a question about the Bible they can't answer. And so they just... Clam up. You don't have to be a PhD in theology. You just have to know the basic truth that man is a sinner and God is a savior. But that doesn't mean you stop at basic truth. You need to go deeper. And you need to be able to answer some of these questions without having to call one of the staff members. And then I would say, turn your Bible loose. You know what Spurgeon said? Someone asked him, how do we defend the Bible against the modernists who are attacking it? He said, you defend the Bible the same way you defend a caged lion. You unlock the door. Let him out. The Bible will stand up against your friend's objections. Don't worry about that. And then finally, I'd say to a lost person here today who is genuinely humbled and broken by what you've heard today, thank the Lord for that conviction of sin. It's a gracious thing the Lord does not to allow us to go on our merry way down the primrose path that leads to hell. He has graciously caused you to be here today to hear this hard truth. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you in due time. Repent, turn from your sins and believe on Jesus and you'll be saved. You'll understand the next time we gather and take the Lord's Supper what it means. It will remind you of this moment when you were brought low by the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And God showed you your desperate need of a Savior. And He gave you the faith to believe. And your life was changed forever. Let's thank the Lord for these gracious truths. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for your word. And Lord, we all hear objections when we share our faith with others. And Father, those objections come to a sum total of zero. Paul has said over and again in these three chapters, you are without excuse. 
And Father, we are thankful that uh, most of us have grown up in a culture that does have great advantages. We have Bibles, we have freedom to worship, we have access to truth. And yet, Lord, if a person doesn't repent in their lifetime, that access is actually going to cause them to have a stricter judgment. And I don't want that for anyone I know. So I do pray, Father, that you would convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment here today. And that you would call through the effective call, effectual calling of your spirit some out of darkness into light. Not for our sake, not for our glory, but for your good name. And when that happens, Lord, we'll be very careful to give you all the praise and thanks for that. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you again for listening to our broadcast. To learn more about First Baptist Church in Keller, Texas, or to hear more sermons by Pastor Keith and our staff, visit us online at fbckeller.org.